Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Libertarian looks at the midterms. And Richard, we are recording this the day after the 2014 midterm elections. You have Republicans making big gains in the Senate, taking over control, even a few net pickups on the governor's side. So uh, why don't we start this way? I will ask you to put the nation on the couch for a moment. You see these results and you think what about the present state of the American mind? Well, I think actually it is more dissatisfaction than the status quo and less an embrace of strong libertarian policies. One of the things that really did jar my sensibilities was that when all the minimum wage stuff was put on the ballot in favor of mandatory increases in these levels, I think they all passed or at least a great many did. And you know that is sort of one of the litmus tests for a consistent libertarian in which you take the position that the New York Times of 1987 took but not the one of 2014 and you treat the minimum wage law as a test case. Easy argument. You don't do it. You don't set any limits whatsoever. And now you see a group of people who come out, quote unquote, on an easy case in the opposite direction. So I don't think it's that they're consistent theoretical libertarians. Now, why should that be? Well, for one thing, I think the way in which most people tend to respond to issues is through a stimulus response mechanism. They see what's bad, they feel what's bad, and they try to do something about it. I think there are very few people who kind of do what I do uh, as an academic and say, well, here's a general equilibrium analysis which will start to tell us how we maximize social welfare which is the sum of consumer and producer surplus, at which point the minimum wage kind of drops out as a theoretical matter. They're responding to hurt, and low wages is a hurt that they perceive, and the minimum wage laws, at least for some people, perceived as a cure. So what will happen is that this will translate itself into very strange ways once it gets into power. There will be, I think, certain kinds of moves on the part of the new Republicans to deregulate markets, particularly in the Democratic, in the, in the domestic area. But for example, it's not at all clear to me that when it comes to the issues of free trade, whether or not the outsourcing critique is everybody who buys and sells things overseas is a Benedict Arnold on trade to the United States, will not continue to resonate amongst Republicans who think that the way in which you do something is to introduce mercantilist policies rather than to introduce free trade policies. What I do think, in fact, can happen at this particular level is at least you now have a fighting chance to switch the name of the discourse, which I regard as essentially hopeless in a democratic administration because their progressive worldview is one which believes that powerful government intervention, union structures of one kind or another are essential to growth. That's the position taken in the New York Times, whereas the Republicans are at least dubitante on this. So I think that there will be some kind of progress made, but I do not see, given the political political constellation of forces, this thing be completely transformed. Now, it's going to be different in different areas. I do think the one group which will suffer the worst on this will be the unions. And the reason I do that is because of the Scott Walker phenomenon. This man basically won fairly comfortably when people called it a dead heat. And he was targeted for extinction by the labor movement who brought in a huge amount of resources from outside the state in an effort to unseat the man. And it failed. 
What that shows to me is that the fellow actually puts forward a program that inefficiency in government operation is something that we ought to fight and that that resonates with Republican voters and it resonates with Democratic voters who are union members who actually voted for Republican candidates. So I think you can do it there. So the bottom line on all of this is that I think there are specific areas for opportunities where the Republicans can move, but I don't think in effect that the increased level of red that one sees on the map now it should be regarded as anything close to a blanket endorsement of the libertarian policies that I support, let alone for the reasons which I happen to support them. Okay, let's play out that political dynamic from both sides of Pennsylvania. Let's start with President Obama. He's got two years left. This is when presidents traditionally start chasing legacies. And the interesting thing about Obama is that despite the way he ran in 2008, this is a president who is notable for his lack of bipartisan achievements. So should the president be looking for grand bargains in his last couple of years or do you just sort of expect him to stick with the same status quo? Look, I mean the problem about the president is he's part politician but he's part a man of quote-unquote high principle. And I have no doubt whatsoever about the depth of his commitment to progressive principles as organizing devices. I think he said it virtually every opportunity he has and I see no reason to think that it's a cynical ploy. So what I really think is that the pragmatic impulse, which he certainly has to some degree, is going to be constantly at war with his intellectual priors. And what makes this so difficult is that the priors are as best I can can tell, wrong on every single issue on which he wants to address them. Uh, so I could recall back in 2008 when I had a debate with Cass Sunstein, I gave the following indictment to the president. I said, this guy believes too much in positive rights, think of health care. This guy is too hostile um, with respect to international trade, think of tariffs and other kinds of barriers. Uh, this guy is too much in favor of progressive taxes, he's going to do that. And this guy is too strong in favor of labor unions. I don't think anything has changed on those fronts from the debate that we had in early March of 2008 to the current. And I thought, as I said at the time, that these priors would doom his presidency. The day he won was and had that great, great experience at um, Grand Park, I said, that's the day this man is surely going to fail. And the reason was that the adulation that he got was enough to basically make him even more solidified in his prior beliefs rather than less so. So I think he really has to kind of completely ramp down and I just don't think it's very easy. So he may compromise, but it will never be a compromise based on the sense, well, gee, maybe I was wrong about this. It will be a compromise based, well, I can't get it all and I don't want to have to veto everything so so that I'll give up some of these kinds of measures. And so I think it's going to be extremely rocky. He's not like Clinton, I think, who was by and large intellectually more curious and more willing to shift and also much more comfortable with making deals um, in terms of the way in which he behaves. The president thinks that you know making a deal on some of these issues is like taking a body part from him because he's so tightly um, identified with the positions which are now strongly under attack, at least in some of the areas in which he works. How about the Congress? The knock on the GOP, even in the wake of these big victories last night, has been that they have never advanced much of a governing agenda, that they haven't proven an ability to actually lead the country. Of course, that's hamstrung some by not controlling the White House. But do they need to adopt a, a different tact coming out of this race and, and now controlling the entirety of the legislative branch? 
Well, they have to basically think through what it is that they want. And look, here's part of the difficulty. You start with the Tea Party right. And what happens is they start talking about individual responsibility, and that sounds sort of good. Then the issue comes to what you're going to do about various programs that benefit the elderly, Medicare and Social Security and so forth. A large part of their base turns out to be senior citizens, and they're very reluctant to tackle on these two major um, organizations. Now, it's not easy to get rid of any program which vests rights in 40 or 50 million people because you can't simply abolish it. You have to transition out. But I think that the Republicans will find that it's very difficult to do these things. And so what they have to do is to find some ways in which to make proposals which will allow you to reduce the Medicare burden without destroying the system, which will alienate a large part of their base. And that seems to me they have to push very hard on private insurance alternatives uh, to government programs as a way to deal with this rather than taking on the, the large question of whether or not all such subsidies are immoral takings from other individuals. I happen to think that there's a lot to be said against redistribution through taxes as a first principle, but we're not dealing from a state of nature. We're dealing from a program that's embedded and trying to undo something that's in place on the grounds that it's inconsistent with your priors is a much more difficult task than trying to put the right position into the right, right position into place the first time. So the Republicans have to figure out, A, where they are and then B, what the transitions are going to be. And generally on transitional politics, divisions are much more likely than they are in matters of first principle. So I think they're going to find it very difficult to do something which you would call uniformly constructive. And they also know that if they put something forward, uh, that the president is likely to either veto it or to challenge it. And so it's going to be a serious intellectual struggle for them to succeed. Um, I think it was almost impossible and the Democrats had there because I think they did have a coherent agenda after a sort. But I think it was the wrong agenda. The Republicans at least have the luxury of not having a clear agenda, so they may get some things right. And what happens when you deal with transitions is you pick the low-hanging fruit first rather than go for deep philosophical differences, which will only anger one or another portion of your base. Talking about those divisions on the right, one of the storylines that ran through election day yesterday was libertarian, capital L, libertarian candidates peeling off votes in some places. It didn't in the end cost the Republicans too much real estate, uh, still one in Kansas despite it, still one in Georgia despite it. It looks like it may account for the margin that denies Ed Gillespie the seat in Virginia, although we should note that the libertarian there is not really what you'd call a traditional sort of free market classical yes. liberal. Um, but how from your perspective, being both a classical liberal and somebody who takes this sort of political mechanic seriously, how should libertarians be thinking about those those kinds of third party challenges? Are they a, a net help or a net hindrance? I'm generally opposed to third party challenges because I think what it does is it shifts you to more status people in terms of the people whom you eventually get into power. I mean, I could certainly see a strong libertarian movement if you think that you're dealing with a Republican who's a statist and you're not particularly enthusiastic for him. And so if you're basically indifferent or close to indifferent between a Democratic and Republican candidate and you have a strong position you'd like to articulate, then you do it. But I don't think that there is that kind of closeness with respect to Gillespie and Warner, I guess, was the other guy in that election. Right. Um, and so at this particular point, you really do take away votes and it transforms the way in which this goes. I think this is less important than the key issue because it was only one or two places where it matters, which is for the first time the Republicans did not put up a collection of turkeys um, in key elections. That's what got us Harry Reid back in 2000 and. 
what I guess it was in 2010 and so 10. forth. Yeah. Um, you can't you can't do that. And so the first rule in politics is not to lament about the introduction of third parties. It's to make sure that your own playbook is relatively error free. And I was impressed at the serious quality of the Republican candidates by and large. I think that they have stayed away quite rightly from explosive social issues where the demographics are going against them. You're not going to be able to win, nor should you want to win on the traditional views on marriage, at least as a political matter. And so backing off on those social issues and concentrating on some platform of growth broadly conceived is the better way, even if it turns out its implementation is going to be troubled. At least you're fighting over the right set of issues instead of fighting over a series of issues which you're going to lose a large part of your natural base, which are basically small government people who are on social issues relatively liberal. The Republicans cannot afford that luxury to drive them away. They don't have to emphasize a set of issues that are going to split their evangelical base on the one hand from their business base on the other. And I think they've learned that particular lesson. And so if they keep that up in the legislative arena, at least they'll avoid distractions. And that itself is a very important um, element to make sure that you could put forward a coherent agenda. With this new balance in the Senate, let's talk about the judiciary. How should both the Republicans and President Obama approach the confirmation process now that it's something that they're going to have to work on together? This is very difficult because the Republicans are going to say it's payback time. Um, now we've got the blocking coalition. Many of the people whom you got through would never have gotten through if you had kept to the cloture rules. You owe us some. And so if the normal distribution would be when the opposition's in control, we get one nomination out of three who's kind of in our comfort zone. Now you're going to say we want it to be 50%. The president will regale at this, I mean, be very opposed to it. But I think in the end, he's probably going to have to capitulate at least some. And it's quite clear that any hard left nominations that he wants to put forward will, I think, be seriously hurt. If he put forward Mr. Perez for a, a seat on the judiciary, I do not think that that would get through. I think the Republicans would quite rightly kill a nomination of that sort. My own view, and I don't think this ought to be forgotten, is that there are a huge number of very strong judges that were proposed by Obama and that was approved by the Republican Senate, and I would not want to see that particular situation go. So the hope is that 80% of these things the president will choose are the ones for which you could say amen, brother, even if it turns out that you're a Republican. So at least the fight is going to be over the relatively small number. The president has the first mover advantage. What he should do essentially is to tamp back a little bit so as to avoid provoking a very, very strong reaction and should, in my judgment, actually put forward on his own initiative, a few sort of centrist Republican nominations along with the Democrats and get rid of his hard left wing as potential sources of nominees. I think that's the doable agenda and I hope that he follows it. If he does not change his strategies on nomination, I think that there will be a ferocious kind of fight. And remember, you know, this all started in 2003 when the Democrats decided to play hardball against the early Bush nominations. And when the Republicans had the chance to play the nuclear option in 2005, 2006, they chose not to detonate that particular bomb. I wrote about this the other, actually just yesterday on the Hoover column about the midterm in response to what I thought was a very dangerous piece of historical revisionism by Jeffrey Tubin about how it is that the Republicans are always bad and the Democrats tend to be good. I don't think that's true. I think there's enough blame to go around, but I think more on the Democratic side. And I just hope that the president decides to tilt a little bit in effort to get more people on who are centrist in orientation rather than trying to go to the mat on some strong left-wing nominations. 
I just want to clarify for our listeners too that the Mr. Perez you were referring to earlier there is uh, Tom Perez. Is the That's right. The, currently Secretary of Labor. And he was active in the Civil Rights Division earlier on. Right. And final, <laughs> so final question, Richard. Um, amongst your fellow libertarians, there is oftentimes an affection for divided government precisely because it can be relied <laughs> on at least more dependently than the alternative – uh, to produce sclerosis. Do you you share that outlook in this case? Is just nothing happening good enough? <clears throat> well, it's certainly better than something bad happening, but there's always a danger to that strategy. If you're starting with a common law, a statutory regime that makes sense, having a very strong presumption against new legislation is likely to keep that thing going. But if in fact the system has been flipped over and you're trying to undo some of the stuff at this particular point, keeping to the presumption in favor of inaction because is much more costly. What you have to be able to do is to figure out those things that you want to peel away from the system in order to make it work more effectively. And I think we've done enough to gum up the economic system in the United States that some program of deregulation in key industries and in key areas ought to be appropriate. So I think, for example, to take one area that I've often thought about, the environmental stuff, it's an inexcusable mess. What one has to do is to transform the entire system in which you stop worrying about quotas and things of that sort and simply tax pollution regardless of who puts it out, the age of his equipment or anything else. Go, in other words, to an output system rather than to the current input system. I think it gives you better environmental protection at a fraction of the cost. And if you put that forward, I think the Democrats should actually sign on to it. So that's an area in which I think improved techniques should allow you to get a better realization of all the objectives that you have in the situation rather than the current situation where you keep on fighting as to how many technological requirements you impose upon new plants relative to old plants in the site. And I hope there'll be some fresh thinking on that issue. I think we also have to see uh, the administration really tamp back on its aggressive efforts to use disparate impact theories in education everywhere up and down the line, including its recent efforts to say that if you don't have the right number of um, advanced programs advanced placement programs in certain kinds of minority schools, that's a disparate form of treatment when in fact these kids may not be uh, best served by giving them a series of programs which they can't sensibly participate in anyhow. So there are things that you can start to do. And as I say, you start with the low-hanging fruit. You try to get things that are really major defects and to fix them. And then only then do you want to get into the most contentious issues um, that you're going to have to face eventually. But you don't have to face it right away. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.